Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm Adam Smith. I'm the Programme Director in the Office of the NIHR National Director for Dementia Research at University College London, and I'm delighted to be hosting this week's show, where we'll be discussing dementia diagnosis in the past, in the present, and in the future. To explore this topic, I'm joined by Dr Josie Jenkinson, a consultant psychiatrist for older people from Surrey and Borders NHS Foundation Trust, and Dr Elizabeth Coulthard, who is a consultant neurologist and researcher from North Bristol NHS Trust. Josie and Liz are both frontline senior NHS doctors supporting people living with dementia and involved in dementia diagnosis each day. In addition to their clinical roles, they both have PhDs and are researchers in their own right, uh, which plays a major part of their role. And coming to the panel with an entirely different perspective, I'm also joined by Dr. Amanda Hesselgrave, who is a senior research fellow from the UK Dementia Research Institute at University College London. Amanda is a scientist working at the cutting edge of her field, working in the development of new biomarkers for neurodegeneration. I'm going to start by setting the scene. Whilst everyone may experience dementia and its symptoms differently, the pathway to diagnosis is very similar. However, even that varies across the country. And it hasn't changed much over the last 10 years either. Certainly not the tests you might go through to be diagnosed. The push to really get a better at diagnosis started in 2012 with the Dementia Challenge. And then the real push started in 2014 when the pressure to meet targets really started to be applied. This prompted a backlash in some areas with some people asking what the point of an early diagnosis was when there were no treatments to offer, and it also drew some criticisms when GPs were incentivized as a short-term measure to kickstart the improvement. That's the history lesson done with. Almost seven years later, and there are currently 427,000 people in England with a formal recorded dementia diagnosis. Overall, this represents 61.1% of everyone the NHS believes to be living with the disease in England. So that's still lower than you might expect. But when you consider that the number of people with a diagnosis was only 266,000 in 2011, the NHS has come a long way. Facts and figures aside, of course, we know that behind these statistics are real people living with the disease going through these care pathways. That nicely leads me to my first question. Many of our listeners are early career researchers from a wide range of backgrounds and may not know how this works. So apologies as this will differ from country to country. Josie, I'm going to come to you first. Can I ask you to start by introducing yourself and talk us through the typical care pathway to get a diagnosis? Sure. Thanks, Adam. And thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to join you again. So I'm Josie Jenkinson. I'm a consultant psychiatrist for older people. I work in Surrey as part of a liaison service. So we're like the bridge between the mental health trust and the acute trust. And whereas I don't necessarily make lots of diagnoses of dementia, I see people with dementia every day and I see their experiences of how they move through diagnostic pathways. 
I also have a national role. So I work with the Royal College of Psychiatrists as part of the Faculty of Old Age Psychiatry. And dementia diagnosis pathways has been something that has been very much on our on our minds for many years, um, particularly more recently with the emergence of potential new treatments in the future and the growing availability of biomarkers. So we need to be thinking about how our services get ready for these changes. So in terms of the pathways that we have, I think one of the key issues, which will probably come out even more as this podcast goes on, is the variability in pathways that's out there uh, across the UK. I'd say the most typical pathway is probably that somebody might go to their GP because they, they or their family have noticed that some problems with their memory. And the GP might do some initial brief testing, will be send off some blood tests to look for possible reversible causes of dementia. So some, some deficiencies that may cause those problems or, or hormone imbalances that may cause problems with memory. And then they would send a referral onto a memory clinic. And memory clinics are most usually run as part of community mental health teams for older people. So as part of mental health services. So if somebody gets to a memory clinic, they'd likely be seen by um, either a junior doctor or a senior nurse or consultant psychiatrist to go through an initial assessment, which usually takes around an hour, maybe a bit longer, and would involve some more detailed memory testing to what the GP did. And they would also, in most circumstances, vast majority of circumstances, go for what we call neuroimaging. So some sort of scan of their brain um, would ideally be an MRI scan, but often is it's a CT scan that's used. And the person may go for more detailed brain scanning um, if they have a rarer dementia type to try to work out what type it is. Um, then once the results are in, they would likely go for a follow-up appointment and have the diagnosis explained to them and get signposted to support services that may be available in that area. <clears throat> that is something that also varies a lot up and down the country. Probably 10 years ago, community mental health teams, memory clinics would keep people on for a little while and see how things progressed. Um, but that doesn't happen anymore because we don't have the resources, sadly. So the most typical experience would be that somebody maybe gets a, their diagnosis, gets some signposting, and then will go back to their GP for follow-on care. And if there are further problems down the line, then they may get referred back to the memory clinic. So that's probably the most typical pathway, but things are changing quite a lot. Um, so we have this big thing, integrated care, big drive towards integrated care pathways. So that's where often you may have professionals from lots of different backgrounds and lots of different specialties working together. So in my area of Surrey, we have something called frailty hubs and they have GPs, geriatricians, mental health practitioners, old age psychiatry, OT social worker, physio, you name it. And people go for holistic review. Um, memory problems might be picked up there and people may get diagnosis through that system rather than the traditional memory clinic. And I think that's the pathway that's popping up um, across the country. 
that people may also get a diagnosis not by as via psychiatry, but via neurologist or geriatrician, potentially. Thanks for the overview, Josie. Uh, and can I ask, uh, what's the typical age of the patients that would would come here? I know is it in the late sixties people would start to often have symptoms, but might wait some time before they go to see their GP. Um, sometimes I'd say more often it's later on in life. So maybe in the 70s or the 80s, but it does vary a lot. And then does the tests that the memory clinics do in, in uh, mental health trusts and these uh, community mental health teams, do they vary from place to place in the country or is it fairly standard? Is this MMSE test or a... So they might vary a little bit, yeah, and they have had to change a bit during COVID and having to do physio consultations quite a lot more. So we've had new versions of cognitive tests coming up. Um, but on the whole, probably the one that we use the most is something called the Adam Brooks Cognitive Examination, um, or the, the ACE3, the third version of, of the Adam Brooks Cognitive Examination. That's our favourite and you can add on other tests to that as well. If somebody's got quite an unusual story, they score really highly on those tests, but there's still subjectively, they really think that there's a problem, things have changed, then we can do a lot more detailed testing via neuropsychology assessment. So memory clinics will usually have access to neuropsychologists who can go in and do a lot more detailed testing. So that does sometimes happen, but not for the majority of people coming to clinic. Thank you. And are people are people surprised when they're referred to a psychiatrist as opposed to a neurologist? Uh, we'll, we're going to come to Liz in a, in a moment, but is that something that surprises people? Some, sometimes, um, not always. Usually, the, I think the GP's done a bit of explaining before they before they come to us. Um, I've had a few people be a bit surprised, but not as often as you might think. So it may be that GPs are doing a, a good job of explaining to people what goes on. And usually when we send someone an appointment, we send a leaflet about the service, explaining a bit more about it. So maybe that helps as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I know in my through my day job, I've come across changing care pathway models over time. I know in, I think in Norwich, they have uh, dementia specialist nurses who work in primary care. So if the primary care trust feels that something is a very obvious diagnosis, they might reduce pressure on memory clinics and try to diagnose them themselves. Yeah. There are so many emergent pathways, it's quite difficult to keep track of. Um, a lot of places are doing things very differently. Um, people are beginning to be a bit more inventive. Um, sadly, um, community mental health teams have been, for older people in particular, have been underfunded and under-resourced for many, many years now. So um, I think a lot of this is trying to fill the gaps in services. Actually, CMHTOPs are using the abbreviation, as that's community mental health team for older people. They used to be able to do this work a lot more completely, but they were better resourced to do that. And that resource has gone, but the need is still there. So people are finding different ways to fill that need. So that, that makes complete sense. So, and, and of course, we should say that this varies massively across the world. In other parts of the world, people might be seen by only by a family doctor who does the whole process or by neurologists, psychiatrists or geriatricians and medics. It's so variable. If anybody's 
got comments to make about the care pathway in your country, please do drop those in the in the comments below. So just to recap, then typically somebody goes to their GP, they do some tests to discount anything that might be another cause, and then they refer on to a uh, a memory clinic, receive a, a battery of tests over what is this one or two visits? And um, could just be over one visit, but sometimes over two. And the person might also see an occupational therapist as well as part of their assessment to do other bits and pieces around how they're managing in their daily life, as well as the more paper-based cognitive testing that we do. I suppose importantly, because as we're going to come on to talk about biomarkers later on, the tests we're talking about are uh, cognition tests, maybe a CT or an MRI scan, and I, I guess a conversation, a, consult, a consultation to talk about subjective memory. You know. Absolutely, yeah. The, the story is the most important thing. So speaking to the person in detail about their experiences and also um, their friend or family uh, is really important. So we always try to um, get someone to come with the person to clinic yeah. to give the account of, of what's going on. And that's incredibly helpful because uh, sadly often the person coming with the memory problem isn't able to give as detailed a, a story about what's been going on. So getting that collateral history is really important. Um, the other bits, the scan and the cognitive testing are useful and important, but the story of what's going on and how things have progressed is really key. Liz, that brings me really nicely, actually, to come to you now. Can I, can I maybe start? Thank you for being very patient and waiting. Can I ask you to introduce yourself and tell us the difference? So you've been very patiently listening there to a psychiatrist. You're a neurologist. How does this differ in, in Bristol and the, the patients you see? Can we all right, so I'm a dementia neurologist and um, run a dementia clinic. And when I set it up in 2011, it was in parallel to the uh, community mental health run service that was just as Josie described. Um, and really, we set up to, as a diagnostic service. So we were referred people who were particularly young or had a strong family history of dementia or where there was a suspicion that the underlying diagnosis wasn't dementia, but might be a dementia mimic, particularly where that might be something that's treatable. Um, patients are referred to us. And also if they have a movement disorder or other unusual neurological features, if they have epilepsy, we quite often receive a referral to try and make a diagnosis when it's not been obvious with the first set of tests that have been done. So lots of our referrals come from community mental health teams. We also take referrals from GPs. And as you say, the story gives a lot away. And I think GPs and other and psychiatrists and community mental health nurses are very good, actually, at sifting out patients who perhaps don't have a typical story and need to be seen by a neurologist. And that's the core of the service that we've run. Um, we uh, focus a lot on, on the history, but also on physical examination to try and determine what the problem might be. We do a range of blood tests to look for the sort of things that can sometimes mimic dementia. Uh, we might repeat some of the neuroimaging or do slightly different neuroimaging, perhaps some functional brain scans. 
I'm not going to touch too much on biomarkers um, at this point because I know we're coming onto that later, but those are some things we use to refine our diagnosis and, and are really coming to the forefront now. Um, we mainly use CSF biomarkers in our clinic, um, but we also occasionally use molecular PET scans or amyloid PET scans. Um, so that's the core of the service. And then because 50% of my job is research running clinical trials, one thing that became obvious many years ago, really, was that um, the patients, that the clinical trials now required people to be at an early stage of disease. So either pre-symptomatic or um, with mild cognitive impairment. But the patients with mild cognitive impairment or mild memory symptoms, the whole way that the NHS is set up is actually to keep these patients in primary care and to reassure them and say you don't have dementia. So we had this mismatch between the patients we need to do research on, so we think we'll probably only find treatments that are effective if we try them in the early stages, and the patients that are referred up to Clingit who would almost always be in the later stages. Um, so we actually moved to set up a new sort of service that's um, linked to our cognitive disorders clinic, our standard dementia clinic, and we call that now brain health clinic. So we actually advertise to see people who've got mild problems if they want to be seen. So as you raised at the start, there is obviously an ethical debate about giving a diagnosis for an untreatable condition early in the course of the illness. Um, but unless we do stratify patients and diagnose them early, understand their condition, we won't be able to get them into research. And if we don't get patients into research, we won't be able to get treatment. So um, if patients want to know a diagnosis, we see them in our brain health clinic uh, where we um, try and do biomarker-led early accurate diagnosis, particularly of Alzheimer's, but also Lewy body disease, which is a different type of dementia, as I think most people will know. Um, we, tr we come up with the best evidence for prevention where we can. So, um, for example, if someone's got very high blood pressure, then we know that in midlife, high blood pressure is a risk factor and that we see these patients are often a bit younger. So we might advise them about simple risk factor reduction, physical activity, hearing loss. There's varying levels of evidence for this, but we try and come up with a personalized prevention program and also enter people into clinical trials where we can. So we're running this brain health service alongside our standard cognitive disorders service which is very much diagnostic we're now just actually setting up another uh, focused Lewy body service to really hone in on the problems that people with Lewy body dementia have and offer them a bespoke skills service so we're trying to set up those um services where perhaps they're not covered in the standard community by the standard community mental health team where they're useful obviously we learn a lot all the time about what is useful and partly that's by who comes and if people so we can see people want to come to the brain health clinic and cognitive disorders clinic they, they want to have a diagnosis um so we offer those services now uh, while we've been offering this service bristol has changed quite a lot so bristol became one of the first areas to offer gp-led diagnosis. So going from a community mental health team to a primary care led diagnosis meant that GP then had resources to supply everybody with a dementia navigator. So everybody who was diagnosed with dementia um, has a named person, a dementia navigator, to help them through the course of the illness. Um, but the effect of that was because there was a shift from 
mental health psychiatry-led diagnosis to primary care-led diagnosis, um, actually more patients ended up being sent to us in neurology because there was more uh, diagnostic uncertainty. So we didn't know what would happen when we had this primary care-led service. We didn't know if actually everything would stay in primary care. But actually what happened was we got more in... So now we're a much bigger service. We've got three consultants, um, uh, two, but actually only one at the moment because one's on maternity leave, um, specialist nurses. We've got a neuropsychology team that helps support us so we can do that detailed neuropsychology. You brilliantly answered every follow-up question I already had planned, but uh, did, no, 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 but did raise several other issues that I hadn't thought about. So, of course, I was going to go on to ask you about the difference between neurology and psychiatry, but I think actually between you, what you've done is, is paint this picture, whereas you might think of this as two different care pathways, but they're really not. They are obviously very well connected. If the majority of patients you see in the, in neurology end up coming as a tertiary referral from memory clinics anyway, when they've ascertained that this is something out of the ordinary or there's something else going on or of course as you said a GP might refer to you particularly if the person's very young I guess so I, I mean that's looking I'm, I'm assuming that people are concerned about things like uh, Huntington's and multi-neuron disease and these other neurodegenerative diseases as well so you you brilliantly kind of demonstrated I think that the care pathways whilst vary across the region neurology and psychiatry work well together well I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say they work well together maybe lots they, can, of they certainly they certainly can Adam <laughs> I think in an from my point of view in an ideal world you we would have access to the different specialties and just tailor your approach to whatever the person needs and we would work lot more closely together rather than having this kind of hub and spoke model with the GP having to make lots of different referrals it doesn't make sense to me um having more integrated care where you have access to multiple specialties who work quite closely together I think can work really well um in our integrated care system in Surrey that does happen actually so you've got geriatricians neurologists and um psychiatrists all working within the same service or connected to the same service I, I think that's probably a, a better way if possible and it sounds like that's the case in Bristol as well and and the idea of brain health clinics I love I think there are I, in fact I'm sure I read an article just recently how they're setting some of these up in Scotland right now as well um sorry Liz go on you were going to say See, so I was just going to say that we we've formed a network because there are a few of us setting up brain health clinics and yes Edinburgh is very prominent as Oxford um then also Manchester and South London and the Maudsley so there are a few centres around that are starting to run this sort of clinic and we're sharing our ideas to try and make sure that we're aligned I'm not sure how how aligned we'll end up being but um, it seems sensible to have some core measures that we all take and this is grad this is really nice this is gradually leading me in the direction I want to go with this conversation as we move slowly towards bringing Amanda in here but you you did touch on I think you touched on an important point about mild cognitive impairment which we talked about earlier and bringing forward this issue that we know that MCI is dealt with differently in the country if the if the tests you perform don't answer the questions with any certainty and it gives you an indication there's something maybe there but it's too early to say there seems that the approaches I've come across are either send people home and say come back if it gets worse or they'll other places will give out a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment and discuss 
changes you can make to lifestyle to maybe improve that or to prolong those conditions. But that MCI as a diagnosis is a controversial one in its right, isn't it? Yeah, it, well, it's, it's, to me, it's not really a proper diagnosis. It's a kind of description of a stage. And yeah. if you come up to us and say, I've got some mild memory symptoms, we turn around to them and say, you've got mild cognitive impairment. I mean, it doesn't, it's, what they need to know is what that means for them in the future. So we need to know how to prognosticate people with mild symptoms. And I think everybody at that stage should be offered research. So after you discharge at the moment from secondary what do you discharge? Do you keep them on your books for a while or do you keep patients? Do you refer them back to primary care? Do you talk to me? So, yes. Um, Sorry, so, yeah, Liz. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I do. I try not to discharge anybody because I wish I, but I have to because I want, you to, want to keep them for your trials. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I want to see what I want to see what happens, and you get to know someone really well as you do the diagnostic process, and you want to. So we routinely do year offer yearly follow ups, but obviously that comes at a, there's a limit to the number of people you can follow up. So sometimes we do have to discharge, and sometimes also it's not useful for someone to come up. Some people really like it; they can get some feedback about how they're doing, and others don't. So we're quite flexible as much as we can be with our follow up. But that's I think that's quite unusual. I think. Um, mm the whole people are discharged who who funds your service liz so so we're funded by we're part of neurology um so we've got the sort of payment by results system um so it, i guess it's the ccg but it's not in, it's not commissioned in the same way as a standard memory clinic where you have the parameters of set quite differently mm-hmm. um which is why we don't have quite the same set of rules i think I do, this may end up changing. Mm, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't touch on this because I think this is probably a, a, a podcast in its own right. But talking about money, of course, diagnostic tests. Uh, I mean, the money's got to come into play here, right? I, it sounds to me like Joseph's service is cheaper than Liz's service because you're going to order lots more diagnostic tests and see people for longer, which costs more money. Bringing this together to find a cost-effective service as well must be something that. Yeah, and I think evaluation of evaluation of these pathways is really important, and I don't think it's done enough to look at costs and outcomes. Um, Historically, as new pathways have arisen, generally services arise because they seem like a sensible thing to do and to to fill a need, but they don't always get evaluated. So if, if you're out there and you're listening and you're a health service researcher, you should definitely maybe consider turning your attention to, to the dementia care pathways. Amanda, can I ask you to introduce yourself and tell us about your work? Okay, so I'm Amanda Hesselway, Senior Research Fellow at the UK DRI Fluid Biomarker Laboratory. I, I did my PhD actually at the Institute of Neurology, looking at I was interested in oxidative stress and its effect on mitochondria in the brain. And some years later, landed back at the Institute of Neurology, where we, where they gained quite a bit of funding to kind of set up a neurodegenerative disease biomarker laboratory. It was kind of to draw together um, expertise and try and get something going so we could um, well, so we could do some good research, really. So we started in 2012 doing that. And at that time, as um, has already been mentioned, actually, we were 
really limited to looking at research studies where they were taking CSF from people going into memory clinics or people going into other disease clinics or whatever, because we knew or we know that actually the, the fluid that surrounds the brain is obviously going to give us the most information about, you know, the diseases of the brain. And um, in lots of cases, and it's common to all of the neurodegenerative diseases, I believe, you'll see aggregated proteins. And so we were able to look at these proteins in CSF. And because of the um, kind of the place and the situation we're at at UCL, which is and the Institute of Neurology with the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery next door, we were able to work with lots of neurologists who were um, also researchers. And so were able to get access to people who wanted to take part in research studies. And so in this way, we spent the first few years kind of looking to see if we could find novel biomarkers in CSF and um, improving methods to actually measure the kind of things like beta amyloid and um, tau proteins and also neurofilaments in the CSF. And so that's where we were then. And one of the things I was particularly, and I still am actually interested in, is looking at how we differentiate disease. That's a really big problem that leads on to the kind of thinking about clinical trials for a drug and stratifying people onto the right, onto the right trial. I mean, if you don't know what they've got really, you can't put them on a trial because you don't know what you're trying to cure. So, so I mean, that's, that's still an interest of mine. But in the meantime, a few years in, so about 2015, we got hold of some new technology. And this technology, basically, it's super sensitive assay platform. That makes it sound very simple, actually. And it is really. Basically, we were, we were able, using this new technology, to actually move and look at the proteins that we, were, that we knew were active in the brain causing these diseases in blood. And um, it's come on, actually, it feels like it's taken a long time to me, but it's probably really, really quickly that we've moved from being able to look at things and in CSF to look at the, those proteins in the blood and say, yes, these are giving us a picture of what's going on in the brain. And all we need is some blood from, um, from someone with a disease or, or whatever. So, so come, do you mind if I ask you some yep. No. what might be stupid questions as a as just just to help me you can get more information still from csf than you can blood even now i mean yes that would be true but csf of course is quite awkward to collect and no one wants to do it and particularly what you need always in the study is control samples now try getting someone who hasn't got any disease and isn't worried about a disease to give you a lumbar puncture it's not the easiest thing in the world and, and from CSF, how reliably can you um, can you diagnose different neurodegenerative diseases? So for Alzheimer's disease, it's still, I mean, there aren't, as far as I'm aware, the NHS clinic at the Institute of or at the National Hospital is the only one that offers a dementia kind of diagnosis service. And even then, I mean, 
yes, using CSF. Using using CSF. And there you they do. I think I think there are a few, there are, there are many centres, but yeah, we do as well. Yeah. Okay. So there they look at the amyloid beta levels and that in the CSF, it goes down in those people. Well, it goes down, it can be an indication of AD. It can go down for other reasons as well, but then you can mitigate that by using um, ratios. And tau protein tends to go up in the CSF, as does phosphatau, which is um, pretty unique to AD in the CSF. But that still, it's not standalone. They don't do that and give a diagnosis. You still, you still need the cognitive testing. You still possibly need imaging. It, okay. It's never definitive. So it's not, you can't do a CSF and say, right, I can uh, 95% say you have Alzheimer's or you have Lewy body dementia, for example. No, no, you can't. And uh, do you think you ever will, or is that just not how it works? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I don't know, because there's never, ever going to be, for any of the diseases that we look at, I think, one thing that's going to give you the, the correct answer, not the correct answer, but, you know, the answer. So, as well, actually, you, you raise an interesting point. And as we move on, then, thinking specifically about blood-based biomarkers, so you're managing to get to a point now where you can find out the same level of information in blood as you could from CSF. So... How useful is that in diagnosis? And at what well, how sensitive is it in terms of age? I guess is my point. Is 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 it possible then for your fifties you would start to see changes that you might not in otherwise? Well, I mean, with the I mean the most exciting breakthrough recently has been the phosphatau assays, which they can now detect in blood. And looking at the studies that are coming out of that, they're looking at 15 to 20 years prior seeing rises in this, in this protein. And so obviously that's, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe that is 50s if you're going to get it in your 70s or something. And so this is really quite exciting. And they're not, that's only literally a year old, this kind of research has been going on now. So and they're looking at different forms of it, which could even give us more information. So we have good assays now, but they're going to get better. So I'm going to come to Liz and Josie then, thinking about how you might practically use this blood test. Uh, I can see how it's actually got various applications, because, of course, if you were to apply this blood test to somebody who you'd be diagnosing now in their early 70s anyway, I suppose it would help you discount other things that you've obviously been trying to do with your other tests you do to make sure there isn't something else going on there. Um, but essentially, is the main point of this that it would be a blood test you could apply to somebody younger to, to use in different ways? How, how would you use this? Uh, Liz, you go first. So, um, so we've been using CSF biomarkers for a few years and it is a learning curve. They do transform practice. And once you have the biomarker, you, you become a slightly different type of clinician because you, you rely more on a test um, to tell you. And perhaps we're not doing the thing that Josie said so much of it's the history gives you a lot. And I think that's interesting, but 
what we've learned is that you have to contextualize the test. So um, if you get if you have someone who has no symptoms but really wants a biomarker test, what what are you going to tell them if they've got a low CSF amyloid, implying that they've got amyloid sequestered and amyloid plaques in their brain? Um, do we tell them that, oh, plenty of people um, have amyloid post-mortem and never had dementia during their life? Do we tell them, oh, that could mean you're about to get Alzheimer's? Do they tell them, oh, you've probably got a maximum of 20 years before you get Alzheimer's? Um, does the tau tell us how quickly they're going to develop Alzheimer's? Probably not. But does neurofilament light chain, the newer biomarker that's not in clinical practice for us yet, um, that might tell us where someone is on, on, you know, how active their neurodegeneration is. So I think we have to use them very carefully and really understand what they mean for an individual. And it's a lot more straightforward. If someone comes to us with symptoms, then we can say, you've got cognitive symptoms that look a bit like early Alzheimer's and you've got a low amyloid and a high tau. That looks like early Alzheimer's. And then you can confidently diagnose someone in their 50s. But if you wouldn't just go off the biomarker in that case. And it would be the same with blood. So, um, and to, But then in five years, ten years, we'll know so much more about what the biomarker profiles are. Uh, and I think we'll, our, our confidence will grow and, and, and we'll be able to apply them clinically much more easily. But I think they're going to be transformative. And the way that we can get people into clinical trials will change. And who knows, GPs could be screening with them. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I was going to say that could be where the biggest impact comes, isn't it? Because I think when the public think about this, they do think of a blood-based biomarker. I mean, you see on the you know the tabloid headlines is blood test to check Alzheimer's. I mean, the people I think the public perceive this that they have memory problems, they can just get a blood test and they'll say, "Oh, you've got Alzheimer's to replace whatever test is already there." Go on, Amanda, you were going to add. Yeah, no, I was just going to add that we're doing a really interesting study at the moment where they're going to combine the bio, the blood biomarkers um so neurofilament light phosphatau gfap amyloid beta 42 amyloid beta 40 with individual polygenic risk scores that have been worked out by someone who's an expert in that and i'm not but like to see um you know to see how these can inform each other and perhaps come out with a better you know maybe we can come out with a score and and like say to someone when they're 40, okay, so you need to do this, like to mitigate your risk of getting Alzheimer's in later life or something. You know, so make it real individual. Yeah. Personalized medicine, isn't it? This is yeah. heading, I guess. Personalized medicine. We've talked about that before as well. So this is I, I guess this is where trials like Prevent come in, really, where they're trying to take people over the age of 40 to collect all these biomarkers over a long period of time so that you can get better at predicting the yeah. presence of these biomarkers at earlier age increases, you know, so they can get a better likelihood of you diagnosing this and make them whatever changes to life cells. Or more importantly, that you've said that these biomarkers can be used in the short term is in identifying study trial participants for certain drug trials, which is where you can see an immediate benefit. I've worked on various drug trials myself over the last few years, and you know that they're looking for people with certain risk factors and the screen fail rates for those are really high and they big impact on drugs. So how do you think this will this would help you with drug trial study trial participants? I'm making a big meal of that, Liz. 
Oh, it'll, if you get blood biomarkers, it would be a brilliant because I mean, it's, whenever so when we're doing our own research, having to pay for an amyloid PET is fifteen hundred pounds, and then even CSF testing costs about six hundred, and trying to persuade people to get it done um, is is not always easy. Often it's the main factor putting someone off a trial. So um, if we could diagnose with blood biomarkers and then track progress with blood biomarkers, that would be that will be a huge change in our ability to run large-scale trials. I mean, the phosphor tau looks very much like an amyloid marker. So, you know, perfect. So overall, I think, are we looking at what's going to be the best outcome here is actually not any single biomarker, but actually a combination of biomarkers? Because what we've not talked about now, we we see at conferences all the time, is, is that there are so many other biomarkers being considered, whether that's gait analysis, conversation analysis, eye tracking technologies, all these different ways to, to try and differentiate between certain different types of dementias. But a combination of a, a blood-based biomarker with with some of these other things would allow maybe for some better typing, earlier diagnosis, and maybe something we skipped talking about earlier, but something that's easier to deliver in a world when physical face-to-face clinics might be a challenge. Everybody's just nodding. (laughs) 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 My challenge with some of those things is, is because we've heard, you know, I've seen lots of talks about these other biomarkers that you know, technically already exist there, but none of them, are you using any, Liz, it sounds like you're pretty cutting edge when it comes to these different ways to, to look at like, like conversation analysis, like gate. We, like we don't have, analysis. we don't have access to that at the moment, but it's really exciting to see all the different areas that are developing. I think like most areas of medicine, things get ever more complex, the more we research and understand them. And I think we can't even conceive of the solutions that are going to emerge in 10 years time because it's going to be so dependent on things like machine learning and algorithms and using huge amounts of different bits of information that are much easier to get because of more sophisticated technologies. Um, We can't quite conceive of it yet but I suspect it will be getting huge amounts more information than we get at the moment by by various different means, via measurements on scans, biomarkers, uh, gait analysis, all these different things, and putting it all together to come up with probabilities and answers is where I think we're probably headed, is ever more complicated routes that most people actually won't understand, but it may be protocol-driven so people will get a battery of investigations and tests and then we'll come up with it, with an answer based on those. And I suppose it's interesting to see that the, the blood-based biomarker itself is going to transform certain areas sooner than others. So clearly it's going to be particularly helpful in the short term with recruitment to certain trials, particularly being able to see whether amyloid is there without having to do expensive PET scans or CSF and things of potential yeah. volunteers. And rule out certain, I mean, it's pretty specific for AD, so you can rule out, you know, other things. And there'll be other ones that will rule out more. I, I know there will. That's just a matter of time. And so that's that's the brilliant short-term goals. And then as we gather more information and more data and can start to see what those predictors are in an earlier age, mm-hmm. I guess is working towards a point where, you know, at age 50, you're offered a screening test like you are for other things in the future. Maybe that's still a, a way off. But as you've all said, the, the this technology, this research is moving on so rapidly. 
Well, that, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. This has been a, a really interesting topic and it's one that I want to talk about for quite some time. We didn't spend as much time talking about the um, effects of the pandemic on diagnosis care pathways. Um, uh, That's I, I a whole podcast in itself, Adam. It is. Uh, you're entirely right. I mean, having looked at the numbers, we know that the numbers fell in the last year. I think there were 35,000 fewer people diagnosed this year. At one point, it looks like things are starting to catch back up now attention. So it's time to end today's show. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Amanda Heselgrave, Dr. Josie Jenkinson, and Dr. Liz Coulthard. Um, we have profiles on all of today's panellists on the website, including details of their Twitter accounts, so you can please look them up uh, and do reach out if you've been uh, affected by any of the topics we've discussed in today's podcast. Um, there'll also be lots of other content on our website as well, which will help anybody interested in this field. Finally, please do remember to subscribe in whichever app you're listening to. And thank you very much. And goodbye. Thank you for listening. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.